1 Timothy 2.1 I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Prayer is the most ancient universal of the religious instinct. But strange paradox. Most of us can find it hard to pray at times. We call it indispensable. We know the scriptures call for it. Yet we often fail to pray. Samuel Chadwick said this. He was essentially a man of prayer. Every morning he would be a steer shortly after six o'clock, and he kept a little room which was his primitive sanctum for his quiet hour before breakfast. He was mighty in public prayer because he was constant in private devotion. When he prayed, he expected God to do something. I wish I had prayed more, he wrote toward the end of his life. Even if I had worked less, and from the bottom of my heart, I wish I had prayed better. We need to strive and endeavor to pray, even when we think we cannot. To Martin Luther, an extra load of duties was reason enough to pray even more, not less. Here is plans for the next day's work. He said, work, work, from early till late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. If Luther was busy and prayed, we can be busy and pray as well. Try to explain exactly how prayer works and you will quickly run against some very difficult puzzles. We cannot learn about prayer except by praying. No philosophy has ever taught a soul to pray. The intellectual problems associated with prayer are met in the joy of answered prayer and closer fellowship with God. Our belief in the necessity of prayer comes from observing life. Prayer was the dominant feature of Jesus' life and a recurring part of his teaching. Prayer kept his moral vision sharp and clear. Prayer gave him courage to endure the perfect but painful will of his Father. To Jesus, prayer was not a hasty add-on, but a joyous necessity. In Luke 5.16, we have a general statement which throws a vivid light on the daily practice of the Lord. Luke 5.16 says, And he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. It was our Lord's habit to seek retirement in prayer. When he withdrew himself from men, he was accustomed to press far into the uninhabited country. He was in the deserts. The surprise of the onlookers lay in this, that one so mighty, so richly endowed with spiritual power, should find it necessary for himself, that there he might refresh his weary spirit. To us the wonder is still greater, that he, the Prince of Life, the Eternal Word, the only begotten Son of the Father, should himself in meekness before the throne of God, making entreaty for the grace to help in time of need, seek the Lord in prayer himself. Christ spent full nights in prayer. We see that in Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. It says, And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Jesus often rose before dawn to have unbreaking communion with his Father. We see that in Mark 1 verse 35. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place, and there he prayed. The great crisis of his life, the ministry began with periods of special prayer. We see that in Luke 5.16. And he withdrew and he prayed. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. A statement that indicates a regular habit. By word and example, he instructed his disciples on the importance of solitude in prayer. Mark 6.46 says this, And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. Following the feeding of the 5,000, then in Luke 9.28, preceding the transfiguration, Luke 9.28 says, And it came to pass about 
and eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. True intercession is a sacrifice, a bleeding sacrifice, wrote J.H. Jowett. Jesus performed miracles without a sign of outward strain, but he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears, as noted in Hebrews 5, verse 7. True prayer is strenuous spiritual exercise that demands the utmost mental discipline and concentration, but it is not force. We are not forcing our will upon God. Prayer can be a strenuous spiritual exercise, but it is not force. We are not trying to force God to do anything. We are praying and should be praying in accordance with his will. So praying can be a strenuous spiritual exercise, but we are not trying to force God to do anything. Paul, probably the greatest human champion of prayer, confessed in Romans chapter 8, 26-28 when he said, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is in the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Paul, the greatest, probably the greatest of human champions of prayer, confessed, I do not know what I ought to pray. And then he added, But the Spirit intercedes for me with groans that words cannot express. And he searches our hearts and, our, and knows our minds, and the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance to God's will. The Spirit joins us in prayer and pours his supplications onto ours and with ours. The Spirit's help in prayer is mentioned in the Bible more frequently than any other help he gives us. All true praying comes from the Spirit's activity in our souls. True prayer rises in the spirit of the Christian from the Spirit who indwells the Christian. To pray in the Spirit is important for two reasons. First, we are to pray in the realm of the Spirit. It's in the mind alone. The product of our thinking requires the cooperation of the mind and moves in the supernatural realm of the Spirit. Second, we are to pray in the power and energy of the Spirit. Ephesians 6.18 says this, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Prayer demands more than human power, but it should not encompass human forcefulness. We should not be trying to force our will upon God. Praying in the Holy Spirit releases supernatural resources. The Spirit delights to help us in our prayer. Sometimes we are kept from prayer by sin in our heart. Sometimes the ignorance of our minds hinders our prayer. We get sick, we feel ill, we are weak. The Spirit will quicken our bodies and enable us to rise above weakness. Sometimes our attitude, our forcefulness in prayer, trying to force our will upon God, hinders the answers to our prayer. Jesus was concerned with the forces of evil that caused people to sin. Behind Peter's denial and Judas' betrayal was the sinister hand of Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan, was the Lord's response to Peter's presumptuous rebuke. All around us are people bound in sin, captives to the devil. Our prayers should ascend not only for them, but against Satan who holds them as his prize. Satan must be compelled to relax his grip, and this can only be achieved by Christ's victory on the cross. In a telling illustration, Jesus compared Satan to a strong man, fully armed. Before anyone can enter a man's house and set captives free, the man must first be bound. Only then can a rescue succeed. Matthew 12:29 says this, Or else how can... One enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. What could it mean to tie up the strong man, except to neutralize 
his might through the overcoming power of Christ who came to destroy, to nullify, to render inoperative the works of the devil. We cannot hope to effect a rescue from Satan's den without first disarming the adversary. Though prayer can be forceful on behalf of others, prayer does not try to force, or prayer should not try to force God. We should not try to make God answer according to our dictates or according to our will. Prayer can be forceful in intercession on behalf of others, but prayer should not try to force God or make God answer a prayer according to our will or according to our dictates. There are some places where force will not work. Imagine a watchmaker trying to repair your delicate watch by using a hammer. A quality other than force is required, and in prayer a quality other than forcing our will on God is required. When we are trying to touch the all-powerful, all-energized hem of God's garment in prayer, force will not help much. It may even cause a spiritual short circuit. We often try to force God to do things for us because many of us never pray until we are in deep trouble. When we are in that condition, our nerves are unstrung, our patience is gone, our thinking is unreliable, so we bang impatiently on God's door. Yet there is an exception to this type of receptive contact in prayer. I refer to the kind of crisis our Lord faced in the Garden of Gethsemane. What we are talking about in this is the impetuous violence of a person who prays only when he's in trouble and only then for his own willful ends. We are to pray importunately. We are to pray with urgency. We are to pray with an anguished heart about circumstances we're in, but we are not to pray in that impetuous type of prayer, a violent prayer against the Lord trying to force him to answer it our way and only praying for our own willful ends. Jesus gives a big, wide hint about this in Matthew's Gospel, when he says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffered violence, and the violent took it by force. Our Lord says that such a tactic is not the way of spiritual power. Then he adds the clue, saying that we should receive it. Did you ever, as a child, run up to your father when he wanted to give you a present, and then try to take it from him by force, try to jerk it out of his arms, forcefully, impetuously, just take it, remove it from him? But can't you remember how he would hold you off with his long arm, his strong arm, and he'd say, wait a minute, wait a minute, son, wait a minute. But when you approached differently, you stood there eagerly, though reserved in your patience. Then he would say, usually with a smile on his face, here, son, I want you to have this, take it. God is ready to give us all the good things we need if we will learn to receive them. But if we try to take the kingdom from him by violence, we may receive a shock. There is an art in knowing how to receive gifts with humble thankfulness and not forcefully try to take them on our own. The more we are able to receive graciously, the more power he will permit us to use. When we pray frantically, making our minds and bodies tense, clenching our fists, squinting our eyes, grinding our teeth, we are not receiving the kingdom of God. We are fighting to take it by violence. Let's bring a little practical psychology into this conversation. When we tell God what we must have, we are not saying, Thy will be done. We are saying, My will be done. We are not saying, Thy kingdom come. We are saying, My kingdom come. When we demand that things turn out our way, we are going to begin to wonder, then when they do not turn out our way, that God is not answering our prayer. Our conscience won't let us alone. In other words, we may lose our faith because of the way we prayed 
because we prayed only for our will and not thy will be done. We may demand so much that it goes into the operation of what an old psychologist called the law of reversed effort. This psychological law can be illustrated by telling about a young lady who went to her first dance. She had always been told that she was clumsy, so she worried for days before for fear that she would trip in the middle of the dance floor. Mother didn't help matters because she kept reminding the girl that she must not trip. The girl decided to be her own psychologist and said to herself a hundred times a day, I won't trip, I won't trip, I won't trip. But the fear still haunted her. What happened inside her mind was this. She never lost the fear because she was telling herself, I won't trip. She was in reality reminding her subconscious mind that she was going to trip. The more she said, I won't trip, the more her fear said, you will. When it came time for her to walk across the middle of the dance floor, well, you know what happened. She tripped. Job said something to the effect that which I fear, that comes upon me. The more we try to force God with our own wills, the more we try to take the kingdom of heaven by violence or by force, our conscience knows the truth. We then unconsciously remind ourselves of our own doubts. Now let's approach God the positive way. One secret of the power of prayer rests in the art of receiving. First know that there is nothing reluctant, stingy, or small about God. The greatest of joy, he has to give us all the good gifts we could possibly receive. However, to realize his gifts, we must learn two great arts, those of acceptance and of the realization of his presence. A pastor who goes out to make calls on the members of his church He'll walk up to the front porch and casually place his finger against the bell and gives it a gentle push. He is relaxed and stands waiting. But when he has waited about two minutes, which seems to him like a half hour, he gets impatient. This time he walks over to the bell and doesn't use his forefinger, it presses with his thumb. He uses real force and gives several extra pushes for good measure. He waits another minute or two, and when no one comes to the door, he does this again, except he presses with his thumb and this time he puts the whole weight of his body and strength behind that push. He really rings the bell this time. Now the point is this. The volume of sound was just as loud when he gently used his finger than when he put his whole weight and his thumb and pushed with all his might against the doorbell. It produced the same sound. No amount of strain or pressure could make the bell ring with any more volume. It produced the same sound. All that was necessary to make a contact, make those two pieces of metal needed to touch each other to gently make the bell ring, was just a gentle push of his forefinger. So let's get in the habit of knowing that all we need to do in the beginning is to make contact. When the switch is turned on easily, the power of God begins to flow. When you have finished contact prayer, we are not fatigued and worn out. We don't feel as though we wished we didn't have to pray. We don't feel that we have performed a duty. We come away from prayer rested and refreshed. That is exactly what Jesus did. When he was tired out, he went away and went alone to be with God. He didn't use force to try to get God's help. He relaxed. He sat or knelt down alone and let God's power saturate every part of his mind and his body. We repeat what he said to his disciples, come apart and rest a while. This does not mean that we do not pray importunately. This does not mean that we are not to anguish over what we are praying about, as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. We are to be importunate in our prayer, and we can be in anguish over the issue or the circumstance we are praying about. But we are not to try to go out and force our will, force our desired answer on God. We are to go out and pray, Thy will be done. 
thy kingdom come. And remember how we approach the Lord. Don't try to wrestle the answer out of his arms. Don't try to force him to give the answer. Remember the illustration with the father. We'll try to jerk that present out of his arm. He'll say, hold on, wait a second, wait a second. Pushes off with his arm. But if we go up to him patiently, eagerly, awaiting that answer to the prayer, and not try to force our will, but anxiously await his will, that father will turn to us with a smile and say, here you go, my son. Take this. Enjoy, and I have much more coming for you. Thank you.